Welcome to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Blair Cook. And I'm Jen Nicholson. And today we are joined by Jose Hernandez. And Jose has worked on some of the largest fraud, bribery, and money laundering cases on record. Jose is a former PwC partner, and in 2016, he founded his own Zurich-based crisis response consultancy, Orta Strategies. His client list has included global giants like FIFA, Siemens, and Daimler. His two decades of experience have taught him that no business is immune from the possibility of an existential crisis. He believes that corporate misconduct is inevitable, but scandal is not. Jose is active in global governance discussions in Latin America, Europe, and North America. He is an international expert on ethics and innovation, corruption and money laundering, and the future of business and leadership. Today, we're talking to Jose about uh, the idea of empowering integrity. He has a new book called Broken Business, where he talks about the seven steps to help any business get through a crisis situation and come out stronger on the other end. Let's get started. I'm very excited to be here today with Jose Hernandez, the CEO of Ortiz Strategies and the author of the new book, Broken Business, Seven Steps to Reform Good Companies Gone Bad. Jose has worked on some of the largest fraud, bribery, and money laundering cases on record. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Jose. Thank you for inviting me. You have a quite an impressive background with uh, your CPA in Canada, a CPA in the U.S., a chartered financial analyst. You've got a Bachelor of Math, Master's of Accounting, and your PhD. Yeah, makes me sound really old, right? <laughs> it does. Uh, yeah, you definitely don't look like you could possibly <laughs> have uh, all those degrees and designations, especially because you have mm. an 11 and 13-year-old. That's right. That's right. No, that, like learning is fun. And, um, you know, it's a great career that I've had um, in different parts of the world just exploring. And and the profession allows you to go everywhere. It's like McDonald's license to produce. Everyone needs accountants. Everyone needs trust. And you can just export your skills in in different geographies. It's just a phenomenal career I've had. And I'm really grateful. And how how did you end up on this path? Where did you start and how has it evolved over the years? I started just as a, a person, I'm a young immigrant to Canada, actually not even knowing that I wanted to be an accountant until I heard um, a chartered accountant then present at a high school. And I said, oh, this man's phenomenal. I was just so looking into this. And I'm like, hey, he seems to have a solid home, a solid salary. He does great work, different clients. And I was just fascinated. Um, then, you know, as I went through university, I just didn't really know what to do. I'm like, oh, this auditing stuff is not for me. And um, But what I didn't fail to appreciate is that the profession and the tool set can be applied in so many different um, situations, so many different problems. And I ended up, you know, on the one hand, uh, as, as I was graduating, working in Cuba, helping them produce financial statements that could comply with international standards for Canadian investors. Fascinating, but we, we took those skills and tried to apply them, ba- basic principles. I ended up working in Washington, D.C. and in San Jose during capital markets transactions, and then ended up in Europe, and I just stumbled upon a major scandal in, in 2003 in the Netherlands. It was called the Europe's Enron. Effectively, it was uh, an accounting fraud of $880 million involving wow. promotional allowances, and they said, well, you seem to speak English. You know, been to the U.S., and they threw me into the assignment. So that was sort of the beginning of a long journey to um, first in the investigative realm, but then my real specialty is to fix it, so to put remedial actions, 
they shipped me and said, make sure the auditors sign off, do anything, do whatever is needed to get them to sign off. And then make sure we build controls and procedures so this doesn't happen again. So that became my specialty. And then I dealt with accounting fraud cases, moved over to a wave of major corruption scandals that hit Germany, hit Europe. And then money laundering. So it's just been one thing after another. But again, the same basic accounting skills are just applied in different contexts. And I guess what did help is my background. I, I immigrated from El Salvador. So the whole fraud corruption was just what you saw every day. So, but it, this is more applying professional tools to existing problems. And, um, and we could actually solve problems as well or better than the lawyers. And uh, you know, we coach directors, we, co we sit in front of prosecutors and explain what happened. So it's fascinating in the sense of what you see and what you experience. And uh, I guess luckily for you, there seems to be an endless stream of new frauds that seem to happen almost every day. So there's yeah. lots of work to keep you busy. As, as you've seen in what, from the book, you know, bad things happen every day at every organization. And that's just inevitable. I think the my why big is that? point. Why, why? I know you say that misconduct is inevitable. Yeah. Why is that? It's just human nature. It just happens. Whether it's taking a pencil, making a sexist joke, you know, cheating a little bit on your expense report. Well, that shouldn't have been an expense. It starts with always with these little things. And it does grow over time. But it happens every day. Now, my main central uh, lesson is that as an organization, of course, you should try to prevent and you know these issues from happening. But actually, you should be more geared up to when issues are there that people speak up and put them on the table so you can deal with them. So rather than frown upon a problem, you should be happy that the problem reveals itself to you because the alternative is that the problem goes underground and you never see it and then it festers over time. So you should have the right procedures to make sure that those issues get to the table. Then you have adequate structures and processes to deal with the issues. And then you build the controls so that it doesn't happen again in the future. So it's a process of learning. And again, you know, problems need to defy gravity. Instead of problems just getting stuck at the bottom, what we're trying to say is if you really want to prevent your company from getting into a crisis, let problems defy gravity and have them come to the top so your directors know what the issues are. They know how you're fixing it rather than push them down so that I don't have to deal with it. How, uh, why is fraud inevitable? Why are, is almost every organization dealing with this all the time? Now, I know you say it's, mm -hmm. it's human nature, but is it a cultural thing? Is it something that you see across the world? I know you've, mm -hmm. you live in Amsterdam, you've been dealing with these situations all mm -hmm. over the place. Um, what causes it in the first place? So if you look at the whistleblower lines of any global multinational that actually does a good job of actually collecting them, you will see allegations every day coming in from people cheating in the cafeteria, stealing this, inappropriate misconduct. And it begins, as I said, with the small things. But it also then also projects to bigger things, such as getting inside information for a deal. Now, uh, you'll say, well, it was my friend, he didn't mean to, and this and that. But it starts with these small ventures into the, that may cross the line, that you start getting in inappropriate information, or you took a customer out for a dinner that probably had more than just a dinner component to it. Or you say, well, as a courtesy, I'll take you to Disneyland and then have a small. So we may see it as a gift or something innocuous, something immaterial, but these small items have a tendency to get become very big problems at the end because it becomes a way of doing business via shortcuts. So, but you see it every day. So if you're not seeing it every day, you have a problem. So, and that's again, just the lesson from experience uh, at major uh, corporations. How often do you think it goes on when it's not discovered at all? 
Well, it depends on what you mean goes on, right? So major frauds and frauds as, a, as, a, as an event, like a big accounting fraud scandals, they tend to still be rare, which is a good thing. But then if you, for example, you know, I have a lot of friends in different, and I talk about compliance programs and this, and you should be doing the right thing. And friends sometimes in different contexts in Europe or in Asia or in Africa, they're saying, are you nuts? How do you think we get those goods past customs? We pay small payments and this and that. And it's not something that just happens out there. It actually happens here at home, too. It right. happens in different ways. It's disguised differently. It's labeled differently. But I think that, again, coming back to the realization that bad things happen every day at every company, we should just respond to it sooner rather than later. And uh, how often are these frauds uh, prosecuted criminally? Very few actually. So again, if you think about different frauds, there's anything from stealing things that companies are really good at uh, solving. They just fire an employee, done. But then there is the, the real white collar activity, which is difficult to detect, difficult to respond to. And then only a small subset of these end up in the table of prosecutors. So how do they get these cases? When from you, whistleblowers. When you define um, the white collar, do you mean the, the financial statement uh, cooking the books? Well, it could be financial statement yeah. fraud, could be insider trading, could be corruption, could be tax evasion or tax fraud, it could be money laundering. So this group of, of, of crimes, if you may, first of all, it's not perpetrated by average normal people. It's generally perpetrated by people that are very smart, very talented, very charismatic, and have the means and ways to make sure a transaction doesn't get detected and a transaction is hidden for an intended purpose. So often very senior people in an organization. They would have to know. Otherwise, it just simply wouldn't happen. And then, or they may set up an, an objective and then push individuals to get a certain result without understanding or not caring about what the end result would be. But what happens in most, almost all these cases, it's like a slow decline over a number of years that occurs. So you end up, it's not like one day you had zero fraud, the next day you had a billion dollar fraud. No, these things were accumulating over time. Bad practice accumulate until it explodes. Well, what is also clear is that along the way, people speak up. People say, I think there's something here that doesn't quite fit. I've been asked to do something that doesn't really live up to our code or to the law. And uh, in a lot of the fraud cases you, or, or corruption cases that I've dealt with, you end up with a, a story of missed opportunities. The opportunity presented itself in different fora, different times, with different sort of information, and leaders failed to appreciate what they had or failed to respond to it adequately. The result is that it just grew over time. So uh, I know you're a big proponent of whistleblowers and protecting their rights and taking away the stigma involved mm -hmm. with being the whistleblower. And do you think that is the best way to uncover these types of frauds? That is the best way and perhaps the only way. If you think about the best internal control that you can have out there is people speaking up. You can have all the artificial intelligence in the world. Go scan. And how are you going to find a person that transmits inside information to another through artificial intelligence. Yeah. At the end, human and business and commerce is a very, it's a human thing. There's a human element to it. So I think all these artificial intelligence tools and all this great sexy stuff can help, but we forget that there's a human component about cheating. Fundamentally, we're talking about cheating. And some cheating is clearly legal. <laughs> some cheating is clearly illegal. So what cheating is legal? Well, tax evasion. Yeah, you know, I was uh, giving... I was uh, giving a, uh, on a radio show not so long ago, and uh, they said so many of these tax havens around the world, uh, you know, they had ranked them, and so many were territories of the UK. 
And then a uh, person, the interviewer actually said, you know, well, what's wrong with having all these tax havens? Is there any proof that giving all these nations more money would actually mean that they invest in education and all this and that? So saying it is our right to use the power of the Western world with double tax treaties and all these conventions to take all those profits away from those nations to make sure it makes it to our land. And I said, look, you don't need proof for this. It's their money. You're just taking it. Now, the fact is we've designed the rules with transfer pricing, with aggressive tax structures, so that the profit legally moves from A to B. That's sort of legal cheating. In right, my so opinion. when you have a really smart tax professional who can yeah. figure out how to structure we got lots of them the out transaction there. properly, then it does make it legal. Yeah, and again, it's sometimes where it really crosses, there's a lot of gray, but where it clearly crosses the lines when it comes too aggressive, right? There's proper structuring, and then there's extremely aggressive structuring. And again, we are robbing these nations of tax dollars, tax dollars that we need to grow, to need to invest. Do some of these tax dollars end up being stolen? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you take it from them in, a, in anticipation. I mean, it's almost like colonial thinking. The, you know, they can't, the primitives can't do any better, so we should take those funds away from them. So I think there's the part about legal cheating, and then there's the aspect of just purely illegal conduct that you know, also we have tax fraud. That's, that's clearly on the other side. So I think we need to come to terms with some of these uh, issues, and actually they're you know, part of all this populism and inequality and this, these discussions that we're having is precisely because you know, the haves and the have-nots have become even more polarized. Right. And, you know, the sense of hope, I've seen surveys that you cannot, you know, that um, up to the 1970s or thereabouts, sorry for all the quotes, but, you know, your kids had a 90% chance of making more money than you did, at least in the U.S. And now I hearing that. that is something, the statistic is more like 26% chance. Wow. So if you think about that, you know, as people lose their sense of hope, they will question the whole system that has given us prosperity for 70 years since the Second World War, but it, 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 it's come with, these, with this baggage, and we need to address this baggage, and part of it is this tax discussion. Part of it is what companies need to do to have a better sense of purpose to serve beyond just you know, show me the money and give me profits to make sure you do less harm with what you do, not just your company, but also across your supply chain. So how do we change behavior? I know the CPA profession has now mm -hmm. mandated ethics training mm -hmm. for all members. And is that going to help? Um, how do we make people behave differently? Is it possible? Mm -hmm. Or is it just putting in so many controls, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, that it's, it takes away the opportunity? We've always had ethics training. Yeah, in the university, across the profession. And we look, we are a profession. Right, and, and it's at the core of our code of what we need to follow. And the problem may be that we may narrowly apply the code to the things that we see every day rather than, you know, what is our bigger purpose here? Our bigger purpose here is make sure there's trust in business, trust in society, and we hopefully do more good than bad. And our job is to safeguard those boundaries. When we see business practices, stand up for it. And if it's not us, who else is going to do it? Are you going to wait for prosecutors? By the time they get there, it's too late. But there's thousands of accounts, millions of accounts out there, and it's our job and our obligation to be safeguarding those, those uh, lines of business to help companies understand the implications of the legal cheating aspect. And certainly when we see the illegal uh, areas to speak up, right? It, it, but it's not like we need more training. We need to remind ourselves of our broader obligation, and we need to actually do it. And why do people not do it? 
I mean, there's a lot of fear that keeps people in the way yeah. of speaking up. They're afraid of ostracization uh, that can occur when they are the whistleblower. They're afraid of losing their job. Yeah. They're afraid of the peer opinions of them. Yeah. And is there a way to take away that? Is it just making whistleblowing mm. more popular, more common? I mean, how do we how do we fix that? Yeah, whistleblower is never going to be sexy, right? You're yeah. speaking up yeah. against people that uh, feel that you're non-conformist, that you're not a team player, and that you mean wrong. So we're not going to fix. I think what we just uh, remind ourselves that to blow the whistle, forget about it, just, just, just to speak up requires a huge amount of courage. And I think as a Absolutely. profession, we just need to remind ourselves that the first and foremost, we need to serve our profession first. And that's our obligation. That's our obligation. That is the expectation. We may have forgotten not to get our monthly salary or paycheck and all that. Serve the profession first. And then our employers. And, and if we remind ourselves of that, we're primed to do the right thing. But second is, you know, we do need courage to speak up and we have to speak up. Even though as accountants, we tend to be risk averse by nature, but we have to. If, if not us, who? Right? And we tend to be in positions of authorities as controllers, as directors, as CFOs, and we have to speak up. And I recall in some investigations that we've conducted where one of my colleagues specifically asked his CFO, and where was your code of ethics as an accountant in this process? You know, you are a chartered accountant. You're expected to do X, Y, and Z based on the profession. And where was that? You know, and individuals actually remind ourselves of it, but then they're broken by it because... Along the way, circumstances and pressures and so on gave way to their own professional, upholding their professional values and professional standards. But we just need to be constantly reminded that this comes first. Simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very complicated area, but essential yeah. to our success. And it's not enough just to preach to people. This is not about being lectured. You know, because when, when things are tough, the number of people that will speak up is a tiny minority. It is tough to speak up. So I think we just need to remind ourselves when, when, the, when the stakes are low, everyone wants to be a hero. When the stakes are high, heroes disappear. So I think it's just saying, look, it, it doesn't happen every day. But in general, when we see wrong, speak up. And those right? are the real heroes. Those the are people the that are willing heroes. to do it. When and, most of the, and a lot of them in the cases I've seen, they are retaliated against. And uh, they lose jobs, they're ostracized, you know, demoted, and you know, it is painful to see. And uh, this is why I'm so, it's not that I'm keen on whistleblowing, it's just I see the value that, and, and the good intentions of these folks. And then the, the reason they go to regulators like the SEC or the OSC is because they say, well, these, these monkeys won't listen. So I want this to change. So your new book talks about a seven-step process to deal with a lot of this called Empowering Integrity. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Well, I pulled the, I used to have long hair like you until <laughs> I started coming up with, you know, I ended up in a sort of a journey of what is it that I do when I go in as a consultant in a crisis situation? What is it that the companies do? And, you know, the initial steps is very easy, like there's seven steps. The first step, understand that there's a crisis. Good enough. Two, undertake an independent investigation. Okay, I can buy that. Number three, based on the investigation, clean up your act. Take action against individuals, controls, and so on. Step four. That's not that easy to do, though. Precisely. Right? I, I mean, they, yeah. That is quite hard Absolutely. To do because one of the most challenging sets of remedial actions usually involves personnel, senior personnel, people that are maybe your friends, your colleagues for 30 years. 
and they may have just had lapses in judgment. They may have um, you know, undertaken or directed certain conduct. And, and the answer is pretty clear when it happened to them, but our natural tendency is to give them, the, give them a pass. So that step is really difficult. But now the clients I end up seeing are under criminal prosecution. So there's a little bit of a force behind <laughs> yes, pushing exactly. people to do that. But it is a challenging step to take. The next step is actually entering into a plea agreement you know, with criminal prosecutors or any regulator or an institution like the World Bank. And this is where in Canada we've failed miserably. And now it's a subject of, uh, of, uh, of broader uh, interest. But that part, in some ways, I would consider intellectually very easy because countries have um, outlined that in different ways. But the second part, for me, is it's the most important, which is after this sort of this crisis or the big th the, the 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 center of the hurricane has passed, what is it that organizations do to institutionalize good conduct? And this is where I think the real innovation or the real enlightenment comes in that. To do good in corporations after, of course, doing so much bad, uh, so many bad things, you need the combination of stronger structures, better ethics and compliance programs, more focus on third parties, better, and so on. One element, compliance structures need to be better. The second one is you do need to focus on your culture, your leadership, your tone, and your incentives. So that culture part, we sort of take for granted that you know people have every organization has a good culture in theory and so on but part of what gets companies into trouble is a toxic culture well, absolutely a culture and, of fear yeah and the tone at the top is essential you've got yep. corrupt leadership at the top it's going to funnel down to all parts of the organization yeah and it's not even that it's corrupt leadership it's just you have because one of the central themes of my book it's not bad people at the top in fact the paradox that i try to solve is that somehow Great companies with long histories, with good leaders, end up inadvertently doing bad things and ending up in crisis. So going back a step, and these why? were not because good people can create a monstrous system without meaning to do it. It's just lapses in judgment, not understanding what happens when you put a certain sales target on people, right. not understanding what happens when you put an up or out. Or maybe it's not understanding, maybe it's just not caring and just assuming that things will take care of themselves. Yeah, and understanding the bias that, that falls in when someone has, a, the street has a huge target Correct. on your earnings and you can't do it. So Correct. of course you're going to figure out how, how are you going to make this work? And how many people want to go in and says, boss, we're not going to make it uh, this quarter and uh, it was my deal, but I could have bent the rules slightly, but I didn't because I was hold, upholding my code of ethics. What do you think will happen to that person? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the risk, and that's why people do these things. That's why it's so hard. But th there's another element to this that was so challenging, which is part of what gets companies into trouble is they have a strategy that is just outright stupid or too complex. For example, simple things. They go into certain markets using sales agents, sales intermediaries, you know, one-man shows, and they pay them 2%, 3%, 5% commission without knowing or caring what these people are doing. What do you think these people are doing? Whatever they have you? to do to get their commission. That's right. And they will have no quibbles about handing you a little bit of money, a yeah, little money, whether it's the customer or government official or anybody else. And you say, well, what effectively you've done is outsource your corruption, right? And actually, in almost all laws in the world, outsourcing corruption, you are liable for it, even though a third party does it on your behalf. But those risk models, it doesn't matter what controls you put around that. It's just... It's going to be unbelievably costly and unbelievably and almost impossible to manage the compliance risk to you. So sometimes those business models are challenging. Sometimes the complexity in a certain market, you really don't even know where the profit comes from at the end of the day. 
too many business units operating in the same country with different business models. Some some are easy to understand, some are complex. So complexity and also distance from headquarters tends to hide a lot of these bad habits. So sometimes what I noticed in these companies over time, what they were doing is simplifying and refocusing their strategy. So it's this triangle of having better toe on the top, better culture, you know, solid structures, more rigorous structures, and a strategy which is more simplified, more rationalized, and actually more risk-weighted. That triangle is what institutionalized good conduct is all about. And that, in my belief, is what's going to help us if, for example, we say, uh, the U.S. Roundtable came up that uh, you know the pro the purpose of businesses should be beyond shareholders, should be you know look at other stakeholders. Well, how do you do that, right? How do you do that? I'd give a nice speech and say, oh, tomorrow I stand up for the U.N. Global Compact, and then what? How are you going to embed it in business? Well, you got to put it part of your strategy. You got to make trade-offs as soon as you do that. You got to make sure you align it with your incentive system and your promotion system. And then when you see deviations, talk about your compliance programs, you got to follow them up and execute it. So again, there needs to be a system to do this. And that's one of the contributions of this book. Yeah, it, it's difficult. I, I know even uh, the balanced scorecard, for example, yeah. which has been very popular over the last uh, yeah. few decades now. But uh, the principles of that are that, of course, it's not just about the bottom line. Yeah. But what I've seen in practice is it is about the bottom line because if you don't succeed at the bottom line it yeah. everything else kind of gets canceled out and there's that hypocrisy there that that it's, yeah. it still goes down to the profit so it definitely is a change in everybody's mind shift too yeah. It's a, it's a changing way. ways of doing business, Absolutely. really, right? It's not just the mindset, but the way of doing business. And, you know, generally the principle is what gets measured gets done, right? So, you know, if companies say, well, yeah, I do measure my carbon footprint, but what's your bonus and your reward and your promotion yeah. as linked to? Right. They're looking at your targets. They're looking at your revenue growth, your business unit. And so, you know, it's nice to say I do good and we have all these other great targets, but if you're only rewarding a certain type of thing, or you reward one financial aspect disproportionately, then really there's no fertile ground for Absolutely. these seeds to grow. And people see through that, right? They, yeah. they see that that's really what, what it's about. And then it becomes even harder to address because technically you've done all the right things except put the right systems in place. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the, the, follow, the, um, the last steps in the process? So we've mm -hmm. talked about the first four. And the last three, which is institutionalizing good conduct. Okay. And I think those, uh, if you look again, going back to the purpose aspect of things, um, I think there is, you know, people, uh, we've just come out, there's a presentation on the sustainability accounting standards out there. You know, we have this major UN climate change pledges going on this week in, in New York. So again, how do we bring that to business? And what is the role of the accountant? And, and I think I strongly believe that we need to be leading in this process because we're only going to have better financial statement, better business by making sure we put adequate metrics and adequate systems and controls around these key areas and we follow through. So really that's the takeaway for, for CPAs today yeah. is you've got to institutionalize it, measure it, and that's how you're going to get people to change. That's right. And the rest is called wishful thinking. And as I say, wishful thinking is not a strategy. It's not a strategy. I don't think so. No. I wish I were 20 pounds lighter, but that is not, uh, that's a strategic so objective, but it doesn't happen unless I get to the gym and eat less. So again, we all mean well, and we all have broad goals, but unless we follow through, it doesn't happen. Okay. Well, that's a great way to end today. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.